So first off, thanks for having us. Um, this is gonna be a little bit of a different type of conversation. It's not gonna be technical at all. We're gonna be discussing a little bit of sort of the culture of analytics and hockey. I myself am a hockey player. And how does this pertain to me? Does it matter? Um, I went to St. Lawrence University. I played hockey there. Um, I played for the CWHL. The league unfortunately folded last year, and we both Ed and I are members of the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association. So we'll probably touch a little bit on the state of women's hockey near the end and just discuss how analytics pertains to the women's game. So first off to start, um, Ed and I are going to start the podcast as we normally do. So it's going to sound a little bit robotic, but that's just for recording purposes so that we can uh, start the show as we always do. Yeah. Good. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Cax. And you're listening to The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. Cax, we have an exciting show today. We are live, which is new to me. Normally we are in a small studio with a couple pints, but today we're in a lecture hall at Carleton, and we're at the Ottawa Hockey Analytics Conference, and we're extremely excited because we have two great guests today. We have CJ here, who um, is an analyst and has a website dedicated solely to um, women's hockey, along with Matt Barlow. And then we have Dr. Shuckers as well, a stats professor at St. Lawrence, who also works closely with um, our old coach, Kevin. Uh, shout out to Wellesley. Chris Wells. Hello. So, on the podcast, you guys already know who I am, but for everyone in the audience, my name is Melanie Groshe. I play in hockey at St. Lawrence University, uh, a D1 program in Canton, New York. Uh, love that place. And I am a current member of the PWHPA, a professional women's hockey players association, you know, fighting for the right to have equity and equality in the women's game at the professional level. I do not work in analytics. I have a background in neuroscience, both my bachelor's and my master's, but I do like data and nerdy things, but I'm also a hockey player, and sometimes I'm like, the best games I've played is what I don't think, so do I need an iPad on the bench? That's a very good question. Um, and on that note, sorry, I'm uh, Karelle Mart. I'm uh, also a member of the Professional Women's Ice Hockey um, players, and uh, like she said, we're fighting for equality. Um, we, I um, currently am a co-host today, I guess. Um, shout out to Safia, who's usually the host for the podcast. And uh, I work as a product manager for uh, SmartLogic. Um, and uh, yeah, we do need a job as professional hockey players, and uh, this is why we're fighting for it. But on another note, I would like um, you guys to introduce yourself. So. Um, Dr. Shocker? Or should I go Shockers? How should I do this? <laughs> Shockers is, is yeah, <laughs> just fine. Perfect. Uh, uh, so, yes, uh, teach statistics at St. Lawrence University. Um, for the last decade or so, I've been involved in doing some work with hockey analytics, uh, including some work with the women's hockey team at St. Lawrence. One of the organizers of this conference, probably worth mentioning today. <laughs> and then CJ, if you can uh, give us a break. I'm a high school math teacher by profession. My name is Tora, um, and I've been working in publicly in analytics for about two years. So basically, I'm him, but dumber and younger, right? Equally good looking. 
right. Um, and I'm here because uh, I got involved with uh, women's hockey analytics shortly after uh, Mike Murphy did his presentation at RITSEC in 2018. Uh, I just reached out to a couple people that I knew were already involved and uh, wanted to see what I could do to help out. And um, I've done a little bit for uh, for the evenstrength.com. Uh, I want to make clear at the onset that I'm, I'm probably the third most involved of the three people up there. And then I got uh, Matt up here too, who uh, is was involved or he got poached away by the NHL. Um, so uh, Alyssa Longmuir and uh, Jake Flanser are also uh, are the they're more involved than uh, I would say I am. I created a estimated time on ice model because they don't track time on ice uh, in the NWHL, and that helps for getting all things regarding regarding rate stats. Um, and the two, but the two of them, I mean, Atlas have been a crusader in, with regards to women's hockey athletics. So I just want to give them a quick shout out right here. Shout out to them. So for the people that only listen to the first ten minutes of the podcast, I don't think I'm trying to steal the spotlight. <laughs> no, but any contribution to our sport. Um, is helpful, especially at the women's side. I mean, as you said, estimated time on ice, we just go with, I'm winded, can you go? <laughs> but because the uh, majority of our listeners are just people who are interested in sports in general, so we're going to start with like a softball question of just like, what is analytics and you know, how has it changed? Just briefly, because like when I was playing, all I knew was that there was like a score sheet, you know. Did I score a goal, plus or minus? That's about it. two minutes in the box for Kevin, for sure, probably six. But um, just what is analytics and how has it evolved? And you know, from my perspective, it's evolved really quickly, it seems. Um, you know, what do you think that stems from? So I think hockey analytics has been evolving maybe even for the last 20 years. But I think, as, 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 uh, as you mentioned, Mel, it really has accelerated uh, over the last five or six years. I think it is, as, as one of our keynote speakers earlier, Ryan Simpson, said, that um, we really, it is data-driven decision-making, right? So it is more than just, right, the coaches watching film and looking at it, but it is actually trying to sort of quantify some of the things that are happening and going on on the ice. So I guess, did, I, did, I, did I answer both questions there? I nailed it. I mean, there's no right answer. I mean, it's we live in a world that's like so highly driven by data now because it's there's just so much more of it. And I think on the women's side, that's what's lacking because a we don't play as much, we don't have video footage. If we do, it's not great quality. How can how can we provide the same services to the women's game too? So it's not to discredit like the analytics community. You have free data every night of the week. You know, and there's this ton of it, like, uh, you could only create good algorithms with large data sets, so we understand that. But I guess, like, another thing we could just jump into it is, like, why did you get involved in hockey analytics? Like, you know, I feel like there's so many sports out there. Is it your proximity to, you know, Wellesley? And for you, it was a conference, it seems, that uh, stemmed it. So how did you get into to sports, specifically as a statistician, and why hockey? So, I guess I'll start and tell, tell, tell my story since, since I'm the one holding the mic. Um, so I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, doing a lot of baseball, was really, at that time, you know, there was all these numbers with baseball, um, but also playing football at a high level um, in high school, and got 
you know, was very interesting. If this thing had been going on then, I would have dove right in, but um, that didn't seem like a viable path however many years ago. Uh, and so I went into academia and, and did the academics. And then uh, got a job in 2002 at St. Lawrence University, uh, northern New York, uh, a town of 8,000 with six hockey rinks within 20 minutes. Um, and so the, lots of interest and lots of, of hockey going on. Um, probably about just, uh, 10 or a dozen years ago, uh, my kids are playing hockey. Um, it's obviously an interest of a lot of my students, uh, some of whom are here today. Uh, so a shout out to a couple of slew folks who have uh, come and attended the conference. And, you know, uh, for me it continues to be, as much as it is also fun and, and, and now a real passion, uh, it is a way to motivate students and get them excited about statistics. So. Yeah, so uh, for me, it's probably, I'll probably break it down into two different things. I'm a hockey fan because, uh, well, my dad actually grew up a Rangers fan, uh, and then he moved to New Jersey, and the Devils became a team when he, uh, while he was living here, and, uh, you know, then and now they're the only team that's uh, in the state that identifies as a New Jersey team. So a little bit of state pride, I guess, would be what got me originally uh, involved in that, and also the Devils were really good when I was a kid, so uh, memories. Um, so, uh, I've been a Devils fan for the, my whole life. I went to games when I was three, right? Uh, and then I started to get involved in analytics for hockey because I've always been a pretty like mathematically inclined person. I used to just use it to beat my friends at fantasy football. Um, but now, I figured out about, I don't know, I'm going to say six, seven years ago, of my college roommate actually said there's this really cool Devil's block called In Louis Trust, which is now all about the jersey and the block that I write for. Uh, and he said they do a lot of really cool analytics stuff. Uh, you know, they, uh, they did a lot of uh, research and just reporting on you know, the state of hockey analytics and how it applied to the Devils. Uh, Ryan actually used to write uh, for them as well, and that's where I met him originally. And eventually they uh, asked for people to do write-ins to ask for potentially new writers. I did it, they liked what I did, and since then I've just been progressively learning more and more about analytics and really got into it within the last two, two three years uh, with uh, Corey Snyder's um, uh, transition metrics stuff. So. Okay, and, and I guess you touched it a little bit, but um, how would you say, like, how far has it come? Like, how has it evolved? Like, if we honestly looked at the sheet back then, the box score and everything, um, and I kind of know a lot more now that I work for a company that is all about stats. Um, but I would love to know, like, a little bit, take us through, like, where are we now? Like, where did it start, and then where are we, and where we're going to thing? I think you may be able to help out a little bit more here after I'm done saying some potentially wrong things. But um, <laughs> the I normally, when I'm writing pieces about this kind of thing, I like to backtrack a little bit for the readers that don't know a lot about the history a lot and try to landmark a couple of really important innovations. So, like, the, obviously the first one being just counting the shots. Like, uh, you know, like Brian said, there's, uh, you know, some of these things are really intuitive. Just shooting more than the other team is better, right? Uh, then, if you try to make it into player-specific, right, you want to look into are uh, you doing well just because you're on a good team or because you're uniquely uh, helpful. That branches off into relative stats, relative to your team, and then that has its own set of innovations where we then move on to relative to 
team meet, and then moving on to RNPN models, which is a really fancy and awesome way of doing relative stats, right, that the uh, uh, wild twins have the most uh, you know, well-known version of in hockey right now. And then in the other branch off of the core C metrics, you have getting more specificity about the types of shots. For instance, you end up moving towards the expected goals area thing. So I think that those, I, 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 you never know where that new brand of innovation is going to come from, but those are, I think, like the, the mainstream portions, uh, and the expected goals and the RIPNs are uh, what those have branched off into, and they kind of uh, communicate to help create uh, war models. And then you have the other, you know, the, the people like Corey and like Ryan and myself who look into the micro statistics that uh, are, you know, things that players are specifically doing, trying to get explicit examples of what their, what an action that they perform is and how it might impact uh, the results on the ice, as opposed to trying to derive it implicitly from the results of the entire team. You can correct me if No, I think you did a nice job there, CJ. And I think where we are now is um, we're in a place where the, the tracking data, so we're going to be able to do more and more fine-tuned details. Um, and companies like SportLogy and others are, are, are adding to uh, the data sets that are available. You know, I think one of the big innovations in the last 10 years, as CJ mentioned, was some of this tracking data where we're hand-tracking things like the zone entries and the passes. And that adds to the data sets we already have, and then that adds to analyses that we can do, right? And then, then eventually, hopefully, knowledge. Okay, yeah. And, and in, that, in that kind of like evolve or evolution and everything and stuff, like, um, as a player, like, I know stats as a, has had an impact on the sports itself and everything, and, and you guys see it more and more probably, but what, um, like, Personally, Chris Wells brought it up to us when we were at SLU through uh, our professor, um, and he uh, was focusing on turnovers and the relations between turnovers, where they were to how they could lead to goals, and that was the first time <laughs> that a coach actually brought up stats to us players, and that we put some some kind of a oh, it could actually affect the results or anything. So, what kind of impact do you think it has on actual players right now? Like, do they take a look at this? Do they spend the time? And I guess our audience would help too, but that, that would be a question to it, to it um, Or the question would be, do you think we care as a player? Because I think we're yeah. best. We could address that best because I play my best games when I'm not thinking on the ice, but I guess it's like how much can data help me prepare for when I go on the ice? And you know, sometimes it's like we just need that representation. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. As we just heard, it's like defense, if they skate the puck in, regardless of their talent, aren't going to produce as much as the forward does. And Kevin leaned over and she goes, that's interesting. I go, evidently, because if I play defense, I go, if I skate it up, all the forwards are standing on the blue line. Who am I going to pass the puck to when I get in the zone? You know what I mean? As the forward skates in, the, the probability of them probably skating in with a teammate is higher than as a defense does, depending on, on the situation. It's like, majority of the time, if I'm skating in the zone, it's because none of the forwards are open. <laughs> you know, or, or I jumped in really early on the rush and I'm playing more as a forward at that point. Like, I beat my forward, I'm third man in. 
Women in. See? The nomenclature. <laughs> but do you, do you think, like, as analytics, do you do this because you want players to just do it, or is it just a passion, you know? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's certainly a passion, for sure. You know, the, the, the hope is that some of the things that you do eventually have an impact, right? That, that eventually it sees its way into whatever, the GM's office or onto the apps. Uh, I think the how you communicate to players in terms of some of the strategies and some of the tactics is huge. And, you know, I've never been an ice hockey player or coach, but, you know, I've coached my kids travel soccer for the last couple of years. And there's no way that I'm going to say, okay, you're right, in this situation, you're going to do this with the ball because 80% of the time it's much better, right? You're going to say, right, you're right, do this, right? And you, you may, I may change my coaching, right, in what I tell them to do, but I doubt that I'm going to give them the numbers for why. Right now, some of that is also player dependent. Uh, we've got some examples from where analytics goes into the NBA, and we know players like Shane Battier, uh, going back a couple of years now, Shane Battier, um, are, are able to sort of um, internalize the numbers that they get for making decisions. But the last thing you want a player doing, right, in a high speed game of any kind, is stopping to think about what they should be doing. Right, because then they're done, right? I mean, you're gonna lose the puck, you're gonna turn it over, all of those bad things. But I guess the bigger picture is, right, that, um, you know, the, the open question of how we take analytics and transition it into the coaches and, and the time that they spend. Yeah, I think uh, our keynote speaker did a good job there of, uh, of pointing out some of how you can open that conversation with uh, very you know, discrete, simple, actionable, uh, but evidence-based pieces of information that you can communicate well to players. You know, like being able to just you know, pick a spot on the ice and say, okay, I need to be in line with the dots on the zone entry. That's, a, that's an easy thing that doesn't require you know, stopping and doing a quick calculation, right, to, to figure out what the important thing is to do. Um, for anyone who's seen Moneyball, so the whole room, um, then you can remember the scenes where you've got like Jonah Hill in there talking to the athletes and giving them a couple of simple things to remember, like take more pitches, right? Um, and then that's the kind of thing that, you know, in, in batting practice, you can try to train, uh, train to yourself. It's not something that needs to be done during the gameplay. It's just, these are generally things that we found out lead to better outcomes more often than not. And it might be something that you wanna uh, look into introducing into your game. Absolutely, because you can think of Anytime you want to implement change, it's breaking habits. So, you know, as a player, it's just nice to be aware of my habits sometimes and how I might change that. And I, you know, you brought up a great point about batting practice. Like, we could change the way we do certain drills. You know, if, if for some reason our team is always shooting very wide for some, like from, I don't know, outside of the dots, and the coaches go, well, why aren't you shooting inside the dots? Well, we haven't done a drill where we are asked to, you know, I don't know, somehow break into, to, you know, the, the, the home plate. <laughs> the home plate to take a shot. Um, so I, I think that was an interesting point, point just how, you know, introducing some of these tendencies and making adjustments in practice can be beneficial. And, you know, this is all alluding to how is analytics going to influence the culture of hockey. 
you know, as, well, in our state, we don't really have a, a salary, but you know, it's curious for me, if I were making a million dollars, how is analytics affecting my ability to retain my job or potentially make more money? Because it's a very dynamic sport, and I've experienced it too. Like, a lot of your play is dependent on your line mates, who you get put on the ice with. You know, if, if the stats is telling me I don't perform well, but then for me it's frustrating to be like, yeah, I'm not performing well, I go out fourth line against their top line because there's mismatching every time and we're getting lit up. <laughs> that would be the hockey term. Um, it can be frustrating. So how do you think this is going to impact um, players, uh, like coaches' decisions or GM's decisions? Do you think they're they're taking account um, analytics intensely in, in their choices, or it's at this point just with what we got, it's sort of more of a, a little add-on or bonus, or they use it as confirmation for something when when they see fit. Yeah, I think that um, it's highly inconsistent throughout the league. Uh, you can see some front offices that seem to be buying in quite a bit, like uh, Maple Leafs, uh, Hurricanes, right? Um, and you can see the the results of those on the ice uh, a lot. I don't know that. I think that hockey more so than certainly the other uh, the rest of the four major sports uh, uh, is very old fashioned in how you know, resistant it is to taking in some of these innovations. There's kind of this perception that, you know, hockey is a really dynamic sport. How could you possibly hope to model something like this? But like, ask a meteorologist, you know, how easy it is to model weather. It's really hard, a lot harder than modeling hockey, right? Um, and the, the results are even fuzzier and, you know, there's, there's no walk of life that data is not going to be uh, highly important in, um, I forget what the documentary was, but I was just watching a documentary where they said that data just recently within the last couple of years has exceeded oil as far as the most valuable commodity on the planet. I don't know if you remember what the, yeah, so you heard the same thing, though, so I'm not making it up. Yeah, um, so it's, to, to resist the obvious benefits of it is going to be something that will get you passed by, but I think it's equally on both the front offices and the statisticians. To, like front offices to be uh, open to the suggestions and statisticians to make, like I said, make it actionable enough so that they're not just like talking over, like, you gotta increase your RAPN, and the player's like, okay, yeah, I got you, yeah. So that's what I think about it, you Yeah, no, I think that's good. Uh, uh, I guess I would add an anecdote, um, you know, uh, from some other sports. Um, there is now, I guess, in golf, Right, golf has putting coaches and driving coaches. There are now golfers with analytics people on their sort of individual team. And they choose to play some tournaments because some courses match their game uh, better than others. And, and so they might skip a week and take a week of rest because that course doesn't match their game. Um, I'm not so sure we're going to see that in hockey as much more of a team sport. Um, but certainly, you know, we have seen in hockey where uh, some NHL clubs are having, you know, one analyst working with the coaching staff and another analyst working with the GM. And so you're seeing definitely some, some what seem like fingerprints from the outside of what's going on. Helping out, yes. And then um, in, in your two uh, explanations, too, I, 
I, um, I sense a trend where there's a lot of like, of course, like they does there, it's supporting. Um, there's a way to present it to players. Um, there's a way to communicate it to players. Um, do you, feels like coaches are involved, everyone, a human is involved per se. Um, do you foresee any type of, um, you know, getting to a point where it's almost data is not, doesn't mean necessarily an expert in the house or is it always going to be combined to something like, um, for instance, I, I feel like the combination of both, um, having scout or even I also coached uh, in college, so I was uh, scouting younger girls and whatnot, and comments um, that we were writing, plus the data, plus the, the stuff that we were working with, uh, also how. I wonder if right now, of course, they are using the data, they're using the video that they're, they're watching and whatnot, but what's the ratio as far as like, you know, expert versus numbers, or numbers versus, you know, the expert in itself and in the experience he has behind it? himself, I guess, or herself. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine you're going to do Siri tell me who's going to be on the power play, right? Um, you know, uh, I, I do think you're, you're going to need some balance. I think um, the data can always inform, but there's always going to be, in particular circumstances where we have small sample sizes for which the, you're going to have to pull information from other places, and that's going to be dependent on human beings. So I think there's always going to be a human element uh, that's going to be necessary. I think another interesting area um, was that, uh, so Alyssa was just on the, no, after you're done listening to all of the episodes of this podcast, you can then go on to the Ice Garden um, and check out that. <laughs> uh, Alyssa, Alyssa's most recent episode actually will give you a pretty good uh, summary of where we're at analytically in the NWHL right now. But also one thing that she brought up um, was that, uh, also I think it might have been in uh, this podcast as well, but brought up how just by the virtue of the anatomy of the uh, women's game versus the men's game right now, and who's playing in it, the average education level for the uh, for women that are playing uh, hockey is going to be higher, right? Because they have to click over the four years of college, right? Had you mentioned that in the podcast too? Or, is, or are you just are you saying yes, I'm, yes, yes, I'm educated? Yes. We agree. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I think that it might be a uniquely open group, to, a uniquely receptive group to some of these statistical innovations. Uh, not that like all men are dumb or anything, uh, but just by virtue of the fact that they, <laughs> uh, they, all the general education level is going to be higher because you have to play college hockey uh, if you want to extend your you know hockey career. Um, so I think that that's another interesting entry point uh, for the conversation of being open to analytics. And I think generational too, I mean, we're a little bit younger, so I foresee us being a little bit more open to introducing data into our games um, versus the old GMs that's high up who has all the influence but doesn't understand. I mean, a lot of it is just communicating so people understand how it can be beneficial and also communicating. Like, as a player, I was like, I want some of it, I don't want all of it. You know, I'm the type of player, I know when I did a shitty pass, you don't need to tell me about it. Like, I saw it. <laughs> so, you know, but you can tell trends, I think uh, I would have been open to receiving that. And I say would have been, because, again, stable with hockey. But you brought it up, like, so what got you involved in the NWHL? So like I said, the, my, my entry point was that at uh, that the 
Rochester Sports Analytics Conference, I saw a presentation from uh, Mike Murphy about NWHL statistics, and I had only I only recently even become aware of how prevalent the women's game was, uh, and how and then his talk really made explain to me how much data was uh, not necessarily immediately available, but how many, uh, the, the people that were working so hard to get you know uh, really helpful data. And that was just something that kind of struck me as a really interesting, uh, both uh, an important thing to do, but also just an interesting opportunity to try to see what it's like to build an analytical area from the ground up a little bit more. Because, like I said, I'm a relatively recent. Um, I've got into analytics relatively recently, and uh, you know, people like Chuck over here have been doing it forever. Uh, so, he, you know, he he was living through the you know beginnings of the the analytics movement and contributing to it, I didn't get a chance really to do that. Uh, so I thought that this was an interesting way to try to, you know, give that level of contribution. And I mean, I, so for, as an example for why I think this is important though, like I consider myself a baseball fan, but I really don't watch that much baseball. But I'm constantly checking fan graphs and baseball savant and different websites to just get in tune with what the analytical narratives are. I mean, like, Mike Travis finished one or two in MVP, and uh, I think if you don't think that the fact that he's always the leader in war is a relevant factor to that conversation, then you're missing a really important part of it, right? Even if it's basic statistics, right? Like, the most exciting era of baseball in my life was the home run race, which is a really simple metric, but it's still, you know, it's not just watching, it's, you know, keeping track of what the full impact of a player is over the course of the season, right? Uh, it, yeah, it's cool to watch a home run, but like I don't remember any single home run Sandy Sosa or Mark McGuire hit. I remember what it was like to live through that race. Um, and so I think that if you offer, and for a growing sport, you need to offer as many entrance points as possible, and analytics gives you one opportunity to have that kind of entrance point. And I think, too, just like as the sports evolves, you know, we're going to get left behind even further if we're not offering the same resources as the men's side. Because it's important, I think, to have analytics because, A, as a player, you can evolve. It all comes down to, to resources on the women's side. And, you know, it, it's, not to, it's not your fault that, like, the problem with women's hockey is, like, there's no visibility to it. So the fact that you weren't aware of it until, like, a conference is not surprising to me. So, you know... Uh, a thank you for your contribution because I think it is important to to get everyone involved in the hockey community and just aware that you know there's a strong group of women's players out there that a would love access to all this. Um, we would probably need some major uh, TV networks to to videotape the games, but one step at a time. But I also have like this sort of dream. Like the one thing I like about data is that you're blinded by gender, race sexuality, all of it. So for me, it's like, can someone just code what an enter like the most entertaining game, pull out all the stats, and I bet you if you pulled those metrics and did it to any one of our games, you would see that if fans loved these these five aspects of a game, well, the women's side has the same thing. So, you know, as far as just data and representation, I think it's interesting how we can help our game from that aspect. You were blinded by the gender of the player. If you put Matthew Fidupula and Hillary Knight, uh, Sidney Crosby, Ovechkin, and show their stats, I think people would be equally impressed. Um, so, anyway, thank you for your help. We really appreciate it.
Um, I guess like we could move into a little bit, maybe you guys could interview us because we did want to cover a little bit about the same women's hockey and where we're at. I think it's important to address it. Um, so, questions for you guys. I think it might be important for some people that aren't aware of the situation to just give us a quick you know, summary of the, you know, the before the game movement and you know, all that kind of stuff, just as a big baseline. Sounds good. Okay, so um, there was uh, the Canadian Women's Hockey League, which was the CWHL, that had been running for 12 years. And last spring, we got word that our league um, had folded. Um, all we got told was uh, the economic model wasn't feasible, which, to be honest, it's not something, like, I would agree with that. We were set up as an NGO, uh, it really limited our growth. Um, my dream and thought was that one day we would fold that league with the second sentence being, and this is what we're doing now, but unfortunately we did not get that on the full call. So that left about 200 players um, featuring top Olympians, and uh, the reason I mention that is because we're at the state where I always have to sort of validate my value as a women's hockey player by saying, you know all those Olympians? Yeah, I play with them too. You know, unfortunately, I am not part of the national program. Um, but you know, that's the kind of level I'm playing at. So you know, it, it is tough to have that conversation over and over again. But so that left 200 uh, female hockey players with nowhere to play, and just you know, what do, what do we do next? As as for me, I'm 27 years old, which in women's hockey is very old. Because, as you alluded to, we were highly educated because the top hockey you can play is in college. So, you know, when I was younger, a while ago, I'm, well, when I was very young, ago, I'm going to play in the NHL. And then uh, I kind of realized we, the boys get really big. <laughs> I'm only 5'3". <laughs> um, but, and then, then it was like, I'm going to be on the Olympic team, um, which, you know, didn't pan out for me, but you never know. Um, and then, and then it goes, okay, well, I'm going to go get a scholarship. You know, at least I can go get my education funded for and play against the top women uh, in the world. So that's the top. You know, at 21 years old, I was like, well, that, that was a good run. I guess my career's over with. I, I moved to Montreal, which at the time did have a CWHL team, um, but I was going to grad school, and I made the unfortunate choice of being like, I don't know if I see the point of continuing to play. Um, a, it's going to suck up all of my weekends. I'm starting my master's in a research program. It's going to be highly demanding. Maybe it's time I just focus on my career. And that's the unfortunate part of not having a professional women's league is that so many talented players make that choice and do it every year. Like, every year. Like, the criticism that we cannot build an entertaining league because there's not enough good players is... Bullshit. <laughs> because every, like my graduating class, I graduated in 2014, I was not the best player at St. Lawrence, I was not the best player of all the NCAA teams and um, uh, CIS, what is it called now? The U. The U. <laughs> She's going to know. But I was not the top, and I'm the only one still playing. And why is that? Because I live in a city that has a team and I have a job that I can kind of swing hockey. Not all the time. You know, every once in a while I have to go, sorry hockey, I gotta go to work. But, so that, that's kind of the state of where we left things off. Now, there was a, there's a second league called the National Women's Hockey League, which is a U.S.-based league. 
that started about five years ago. Um, that league is still running, but after the CWHL closed, we decided that we kind of wanted to, to unite um, and, and fight for something that was going to be a little bit more of an investment, something that was going to align a little bit more with our values. So we, we formed the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association. Yeah, I'll let you touch base. Yeah, and, and honestly, um, nothing against the league or the NWHL at all. It was just a um, united decision to try to um, educate, push the boundaries, and also get to a point where we truly have a sustainable, viable uh, professional league. Um, and that younger girls get to dream to play on Lake Anaten, which is like the sister, or used to be the sister team of the Habs. Um, and kind of, uh, they get to dream and keep on dreaming, per se. And um, we, uh, you know, both leagues were there, they were alive for a long time, they each had their issues. Um, and uh, players decided to leave. Um, the NWHL uh, or state in the NWHL and all decisions were okay and were understood um, and uh, basically right now uh, we are currently playing into what we call the Dream Gap Tour where we uh, play around North America uh, and we have areas where we tend to or try to educate everyone that there's a better future and there's something that we can build that's uh, pushing uh, even further and further uh, than what we currently have at the professional level. Um, and uh, we honestly are in a, in a state of unknown, but really uh, motivated per se and happy that we get this opportunity. Um, the ones that came before us, uh, the Haley Wickenizer or the Cami Granado, um, and you know, all the other ones, <laughs> even after them, they paved the way for us to have somewhat of a league, um, and now we are in, in um, a little bit of a, uh, I wouldn't say a pickle, but something where it folded and it created, it created this amazing opportunity, and uh, now we're looking to get under some kind of an umbrella where we have resources, we have the live streams, <laughs> or the TV contracts that comes in, we have the visibility that women's hockey deserve. Um, and Sorry if we keep on bringing women's hockey and women's hockey in the podcast, but um, the fan base is there, and um, you guys would love it if you start kind of, like doing the data and video and whatnot. Um, shout out to the guys upstairs too at Sports Logic. They see a couple games here and there, um, and um, I, I just think it's it's a it's it's just a, we are building something, and um, we want everyone to kind of join force towards that. And that's where women's hockey is at. <laughs> Long story. <laughs> Essentially, like this year is just about showing, well, making people aware of the situation. Um, in the past, it was really hard with the CWHL because you, you try and play, you wear two hats. You know, you go, yes, I'm a professional athlete because you want to be treated and seen that way. And it's very difficult to allude to some of the realities of our situation. Like after the league folded and we're kind of, A, we didn't have contracts, so we could kind of speak about anything we wanted. Like it's, it's hard to criticize a league when, when you're in it sometimes because nothing is going to be perfect. But now it's just making people aware that, you know, when we were getting paid to play hockey, like I made two grand. And 
I was in San Francisco for work and I had to buy my own red eye flight to come make a playoff game, you know, like just just as just to grand. Grand. just to clarify that, it was two thousand dollars for a full season, not weekly not per minute. <laughs> just to clarify. Um, also the entire league was ran with three million dollars, which is cheap. It troubles me when I saw the contracts going with <laughs> trading up. I mean, I think it was McDavid's contract came out, I know. I think a tweet was, oh, that's 34 years of women's hockey. <laughs> <laughs> and we're laughing about this. We're laughing. I mean, we don't like, want the thing is, like, the pie is big, and we just want to make people aware that um, we're worth the investment. It's really that, because it comes down, A, there's social good to, to young women seeing uh, women continuing to pursue their dreams, and also, you know, having the opportunity to play you know, at a professional level in any sports, and it comes down again to visibility, like even in this room, there was, you know, I commend all the women here too, because it is a room of boys. Uh, the one plus side is the one to the bathroom, it's very short for women. <laughs> but it, it comes down to visibility, and you know, I, I hope that young girls will be inspired by the, the movement we're doing, I hope young girls will be inspired by, you know, the females in the room here saying, tackling on, you know, what is predominantly a male industry, and uh, it just comes down to, to seeing someone that looks like you, you know. Questions, or do you want to continue with the lecture? <laughs> so, I just um, want to ask about opportunities outside North America. I, I uh, happen to end up being very close to this last year's graduating class at St. Lawrence. Um, particularly Grace Harrison was one of my advisees. Um, and I know that some of them are playing overseas. You just talk a little bit about, about those opportunities? Yeah, so um, a lot of people do that after college, um, especially on the women's side, because uh, it was, it's still kind of the only opportunity where you can continue to play without having to work on the side. I would say in general you don't make money while, while you're in Europe, but they'll house you usually you share a car with you know, the other international players, um, they feed you, so it, it's kind of the closest thing you can get to, to living a professional lifestyle. Um, but generally, the hockey is not as high caliber as like what you'd see in the NW or, or the, the CW at the time, and now the Professional Players Association. Um, so a lot of times, like, and I, I contemplated it for a long time, but I, I got into grad school, and again, I was like, okay, well, maybe it's just time to, to, to let go and move on. Um, but it's a good opportunity for women because you're like, I really go play that professional life. I'm, I'm just going to wake up, go to the gym, go to practice, call it a day, you know. Where now it's like, I wake up, go to the gym, go to work, maybe eat, maybe go to practice. And then, you know, six months of my life went by and I don't remember it. <laughs> but um, so that, that's sort of where um, going to play overseas is. And, and it, I think a large part of why there is success is a lot of these women's teams are paired with men's programs, which help fund them. And you know, the thing is, we're not gonna lie, it comes down to money. Like, we, we're not gonna joke around, but it, it takes an investment. I think people forget how, how much investment the men's side got early on and how long it take, took them to be as profitable like they are. So, um, you know, playing in Europe is a good opportunity and um, I mean, I hear really good things. They have a lot of fun over there, so that's sort of what it's like. Yes, yeah, so I just have one more question.
question too, because uh, you guys talked uh, a lot about there, the, you know, the before the game movement, how you guys got to where you're at, and how uh, you know the plan isn't for what is going to happen immediately during your careers or during your during your lifetimes, because you're you know uh, you, you understand the, the pace that these kind of things go at. So I guess my question is, what do what is your you know reasonable actual what is the goal for what we definitely can accomplish and what it's inexcusable not to accomplish during these next few years uh, of, of, of the movement. I think it's what needs to happen or has to happen is that uh, these young girls need to be able to, they, sorry, they need to be able to see um, professional women's hockey or that there's a, uh, a venue for them or that there's something for them to keep, uh, to keep going. But uh, at the other level, like I think we do need a true professional league that will, you know, have that typical four to six teams to start that will be paired up with um, potentially our biggest league on the men's side, who knows. Um, but it needs to happen because, let's be honest, I believe that the, there's a market and a target for women's and uh, young uh, female also. Um, and when you look at that, when you look at business model, uh, as far as it goes, I believe that something can be established very fairly quickly, and within the next five years, something can come out of it, as far as like money being invested and, and the return on investment as well, too. So the market research has been done from many different areas, or people, or stakeholders, um, and they know it's there. It just needs a, um, a strong support, uh, some big corporation uh, or multiple corporations to come and, and truly see that there's something to do here and that it's, it's honestly, we are in an unfair situation. Bring the same like, like opportunities from both sides is what we're kind of like striving for and fighting for. We're not looking to make millions. Uh, we're absolutely not looking to do any of that. We simply want to be able to be recognized as who we are and be treated. Um, kind of like the same way our male uh, counterpart can, can be treated in a way. So um, if I get to not do 40 hours a week, uh, and she doesn't either, and we get to treat our body and the physio and whatnot, our game elevates in its own too. Um, it's still at a really high level, and like she said, we're competing with Olympians. Um, and on the other side of things too, you need to create an environment for these Olympians to keep on training so that they represent your country the right way. And um, if they can't, and if they keep on centralizing or however that is, you end up with a simple group of like 30 max that are getting developed and the rest is falling through the cracks. So, you know, it needs to start from the top down and kind of like have the resources to keep the players involved, like Mel said, um, and we need the visibility that we mentioned again. Honestly, it's it's a it's a simple opportunity for someone to take a leap and to tackle the and make history with us. Basically, we're changing the face of women's hockey, and we're really, really, really happy about it. And we need to keep on pushing, but pushing with big players would be something very needed. Yeah. So I think like just actionable plans like in the next couple of years, and you know, I'm not privy to a lot of the conversations happening. Um, behind the scenes. Um, we have a, a board of directors and Jana Hubbard is helping spearheading. So they're the ones having the tough conversations. But like in my opinion, like what I would like to see is I would like to see a, a league next year or something that resembles the league so that we are playing consistently. 
So having a set of teams and the resources to have um, a league where we can compete for something again. Um, so games almost every weekend, that's what I would like to see. Um, maybe the year after, um, we start funding the players so that they don't have to, to continue to work. And it's not a lot of money. Like, as I was a grad student, I lived in Montreal off like 23 grand, and I think I paid eight grand in tuition. So, and, and I survived. You know, so, so as a college student, you're, <laughs> you just want to keep playing. You, you don't need a million dollars. So I would like to see, you know, if we go five, five year plan, I want to see a full league, full season, players don't want to work. That's the basics. They don't have to like make a sh sorry, I was going to say shit ton of money. <laughs> 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 On my podcast, we generally are allowed to swear, but I wasn't sure what the vibe is here. But, um, Really alcohol if I was yeah, usually <laughs> <laughs> um, but in general, that, that's what I would like to see. And um, it, it takes a lot of coordination because there are investors that are interesting, which is nice. It's just like, how do we coordinate that? And there needs to be a plan. It's not like, here's a million dollars, run with it. Like, I want a marketing plan because that's how it's going to work. We need to market the sport. Like, no one knew they wanted the iPhone. We can't live with the iPhone without the iPhone. No, no one knew they wanted Twitter. Like, Twitter. I got involved because it is like, there's so many negative comments when it comes to women's sports where I don't understand. If you're not interested, just, you're not interested. I don't particularly love the opera. I'm not like following accounts and telling them I don't like the opera. But um, with Twitter, like somebody tweeted, no one's interested, like it's not marketable. I go, did you know you wanted Twitter? Did you know you wanted to write 180 characters? No, <laughs> it was marketed to you. But um, in general, I think we'll, we'll just close with like, we appreciate you guys having us and giving us the time to speak about it. And you know, for us, it's just making people aware of the situation and um, having you guys just in our, like, know about it. And now you have conversations with people, hey, they're, you know, they're talented women still playing hockey. Um, it's really that, it comes down to awareness. And you know, thank you for having us. Dr. Chuggers, thank you for inviting the show. I hope, uh, it was good. Oh, no, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I did have one more question. Yeah, and I think we would like to send the mics out into the audience. Yeah. Um, the, the, the U.S. and the Canadian women's team have really been dominant um, over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Uh, do you think by not having their players in professional leagues that that dominance is at risk? I would argue that the other um, countries didn't necessarily have the same resources to develop their players. Um, and then I also uh, mentioned that Finland uh, has now invested in their players and then they, they almost won, I can say that. Uh, I guess the you They won. <laughs> I don't think it's almost won. If, if you did not see the, the latest um, Women's World Championship, yeah, sorry, you need to go that. watch the final because there was a ruling I was so confused about that. Um, yeah, Rutgers. just go watch it because we don't have time to get into this. No, but basically I believe that Canada and the US have had uh, money put aside through foundations, through organizations that, that work around those two associations. Uh, and I think that other countries are now starting to do that. So they're allowing those girls to actually be paid monthly and to um, deal with like, okay, I'm training, okay, I'm training for free, or am I finding a gym, and, and vice versa. Um, but wouldn't it be nice to have that for all professional uh, women's athletes? Absolutely. Um, I believe Finland did that. Sweden is like working to get some kind of like 
um, same equality uh, type of like funding uh, from the men's side. We're not even talking like professional uh, fundings. We're talking like whatever you invest junior side should be invested on the women's side too, on the men's and, and, and women's. Um, so yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a mix of just having the resources to be able to actually fight with Canada and US. And just to add to that, I do think that like the U.S. and Canada's programs can be at risk without professional league because the volume that these girls are playing at has significantly dropped. Um, our girls, on, I say our girls, I'm Canadian, um, the, they're having these mini camps every few weeks where they're just going through intense practices and scrimmaging, but nothing beats playing a game. Like, you, you can practice all the scenarios and play all the mini games you want, but nothing beats playing an actual game and honing those skills because at the end of the day, it comes down to decision making, which is it's hard to always emulate in a practice setting. So if, if we don't have a professional league in, like, let's say this went on for like five years, which it's not, but like, let's say it did, I, I would be significantly worried with the Canadian and, and US programs. It, it just the development of women's hockey in general would, would diminish because. As I said, young graduates right now, if you're not already in the national program getting funded through Hockey Canada, well, you're going to work. And, you're out. and you know, right now, Kahed and I, not being on a national team, I've played seven, eight games maybe? Yeah, so far. Yeah. Eight and games, and two of them were like <laughs> a week into September where <coughs> I didn't touch the ice all summer because we don't get ice time in the summer. I think men's beer league and I love those guys, but it's not the same. <laughs> but again, like this is a, obviously a, a different scenario if we have a league, it, it was different with the CWHL and stuff. Um, and I guess we're going to start with questions, but just to, to finalize that uh, that point you made, like the, the girls are saying that they absolutely need a place to play games and a real schedule and, and whatnot. So that was to answer Dr. Shankar's. Any questions in the audience? One quick thing before uh, questions also is that um, the Even Strength website, the NWHL statistics website, has a Patreon uh, and also uh, any funds that don't go directly to the website go towards a scholarship for three months data camp for uh, women and other gender minorities that are interested in uh, you know pursuing uh, you know a future in sports statistics uh, but aren't able to afford it. So just want to plug that really quick before. Any questions? We've talked for a bit, so. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the NHL has held the trademark for the women's NHL for a few years now. Has there been any talk with that league as far as a partnership? Trademark? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've been uh, helping. Uh, and uh, it's it's uh, so they've been helping uh, for a few years, I guess, with uh, specific clubs uh, helping in a way. And the NHL has also uh, gave money to both leagues, if I'm uh, correct. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it was fifty thousand dollars to both leagues. Um, and uh, it's, it's it, no, that's not what I meant, but it was like very helpful and uh, we truly appreciated that. But I think in order to, to build something viable and sustainable, we, we would need some, some kind of like 
almost like in my own opinion, like similar resources. Um, I'm not saying all resources that the NHL gets, uh, but something that we do have in front office, we do have truly someone who's marketing us and, and dedicated to one or two teams even, or a little bit like the WNBA has, has done in the past, that we do need someone to uh, you know, be under the umbrella of some, some kind of structure and the resources being all there uh, would be even more than, than uh, I guess, just the money that sometimes is, is poured in, but necessarily uh, is helpful. But we need more than, than just that, I think. Good question. But yeah, they still have the trademark on the name, so we would have to come up with another name if we would pair yeah. with other investors. Yeah. The WNH. Unless they wanted to, I don't know, release it. Hopefully they have some kind of goal with you know buying that, the WNHO. We would be more than happy to tag along with them. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned you want to have games on weekends. Can you speak in the Is it on? Yeah. Yep. Uh, you mentioned you want to have games on weekends. I'm just, uh, I'm a soccer fan. The, all the big games in soccer happens on the weekend, except the Champions League, which is a different thing. But uh, imagine we have a very uh, two good teams on women's side and two very good teams on men's side. How are you going to attract people to watch women games compared to the men's side? I don't know. Yeah, so excellent point. And the, for those who aren't aware, the WNBA season runs uh, opposite to the NBA to help um, just continue to have basketball all year and not to directly compete with their market. So um, I, you know, I would be open to having a similar model if if we could see that that would be work. Like when I say on the weekend, it's um, in my mind, I was still working, <laughs> but um, if, if we don't have to work and, and we want to play on off nights at the men's, um, I don't see why, why that wouldn't be an option, but excellent point. Yeah, and of course, like, um, 
from a, a resource point, it, it would be, I think, an appropriate match, but um, a big part of being a member of like, the Professional Women's Women's Hockey Players Association is that we want to align with the semester <laughs> that's going to have the same values as us. So I think there will be um, hard discussions about how we want our game to be represented um, and marketed as well because, uh, you know, hockey is predominantly male and white and we need to diversify. So, um, you know, we have a message of inclusion and CWHL has always tried to strive and partner with um, other programs to increase, uh, include um, inclusivity, whether um, it's like um, gender or race or sexuality. Um, so from a resource point of view, I would say with the NHL, it's kind of a no-brainer, but um, we were going to have discussions about where we align uh, morally and how we want to be marketed, because I think that's really important to all of us, and I think it's important for the sport. Um, the sport, we've not to bring up the climate, but you know, it's been a rough week for uh, hockey, um, especially on social media. It brought up a lot of important points, and I think it's nice to reflect on, on some of the stuff that was said and, and look at, take a good hard look at like what what do we want our sport to be? Because for me, hockey has always just been something that I love to do. I get to go to the rink, and that's why I play. Like that's why we play. I go to the rink because I get to see like my best friends every day. It pulls me away from work. It's good. It's healthy. I get to have fun. It's something I'm passionate about. And you know, I think that's what we need the, the sport to be. It's create a community that's gonna help the community. You know, we want to give back. And for us right now, it's just uh, continuing to, to speak to uh, our sport and our value and help grow the game. Because hashtag for the game, it's for everyone. Um, I think we've gone over one more thing. One more question. Anybody? I'm gonna call on someone, just kidding. <laughs> okay, well I think um, I'll conclude it for the sake of the podcast. Um, CJ, Dr. Shuckers, thank you so much for being on the show. The audience, thank you for being attentive and patient with us. Uh, we tried to cover some analytics and we took a little spin, but I think it, it was important for us and I appreciate um, you guys listening and you know spreading the message, thank you. Dragons. Canada. The multiverse theory. Corgis. Queer representation. French accents. Reconciliation. Angels. Demons. Squirrels. Moose. Moose and squirrels. Sorcerers. Dinosaurs. Forests. Giants. Rogues. Warlocks. Plains. Sewers. Lavender. Natural Toonie. A Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Right here on the Upford Network. <laughs> I'm Teffer. I'm Caddy. And I'm Hannah. And we are the Yeah Podcast. Join us as we dig into young adult literature, reviewing new releases, revisiting old classics, and exploring what YA Lit can teach us at any age. Discover the world of YA Lit through exclusive author interviews, book reviews, genre smackdowns, and more. The Yeah Podcast, available through the Upford Network on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah!